It wasn't my finest hour. I know it. I'm really kind of embarrassed by it. But it happened. And this week, from a source that I didn't see it coming or expect it, I received an entirely new perspective on this story. It was probably five, six years ago. I was a young chap. Not 26, but maybe, I don't know, 21, 20. I was back in yeshiva learning as a yeshiva bachar by Rebnussen Stein Shalita. And the way that it goes is that you travel to yeshiva and you endeavor to become a big Talmud Chacham. That's the goal. To become a disciple of a holy rabbi, follow the ways of the Torah, and grow up to be a great rabbi one day, right? Because of that, there are certain guidelines and rules. You're not allowed to have any sort of device or object that may inhibit your growth. And one of those items that was prohibited in base measures Torah's chesed was a vehicle. We were told we were not allowed to have a car. And probably the thinking is because if you give this group of 100 young men automobiles, they probably will venture out all the free time that they have, maybe even, God forbid, miss a couple minutes of the scheduled Torah study. So no automobiles, no cars. But I asked the Rosh Yeshiva, I said, I live far away. Yeshiva's in Lakewood, New Jersey. After all, I live down south in Norfolk, Virginia. It's about seven hours, seven-hour drive. If I take a bus, 10 hours, because I got to go up from Virginia. There's a bus from Virginia Beach that drops me off in Manhattan, and then I got to take the local transit down to Lakewood, and that takes forever, and schlep the bags, and if I want to fly, there's not a perfect flight. There's only a couple flights a day, and they charge you an arm and a leg. So, please, Rabbi, can I drive a car, bring myself, my bags, up to Lakewood, and I'll leave my car by the Rosh Hashiva. I'll give the Rosh Hashiva the keys, and that'll be that. I'll just use it, kind of as the transportation to and from my house to Yeshiva and from Yeshiva back home. And the Rosh Hashiva allowed that. And everything went well. I drove up, and the first man was great. But I was a rambunctious uh, young gentleman at the time. And here's where things kind of went off the rails. The next off Shabbos, the next time I went home for Yeshiva, I drove my car home. And I had a thought. Well, you know, if I drive my car back, and I give it to the Rosh Yeshiva, I give the keys to the Rosh Yeshiva, if I park it a you know, tell the Rosh Yeshiva I parked it around the corner and I bring a second set of keys, a spare key, well then maybe I can still use the car and the Rosh Yeshiva won't know. And I won't miss Yeshiva. I'll only go out to maybe eat with a couple friends and after all, I'm an out-of-towner and I gotta break my way in to be friends with the cool kids. I wanna be friends with the in-towners. So, something got the best of me. Maybe I'll blame it on my twin brother even though that's not a good idea because it wasn't him, it was me. Anyway, I take the second set of keys. 
I follow through with my devious plan, and I give the Rosh Hashiva the keys. I park the car around the corner, and I keep my second set of keys. Things were going well. I was making friends. Now I'm a cool guy because now I'm the out-of-towner with a car, and now people want to be friends with me. But then something very odd happened. All of a sudden, I walk outside in the middle of Second Seder. It was a Sunday, and actually my friend Shmuel tapped me on the shoulder and said, you got to go outside and see this. I kid you not, my car was sitting inside the Rosh Hashiva's driveway, or at least it was a black car that had the same license plate as I remember I had, and also it said it was from Virginia, so things were very weird. But I remember parking it a couple blocks away, so the Rosh Hashiva wouldn't know that I had a car. And eventually, it became known that the Rosh Hashiva had figured out that a couple of the Yeshiva Bachram in the Yeshiva had had cars, and I was one of them who was driving my car. So the Rosh Hashiva said, oh, okay, I have a key too. I'll go take the car, and without saying anything, he pulled the car around, and uh, I guess he didn't like my ESPN radio. Maybe my seat was adjusted poorly. But either way, the uh, Rosh Hashiva brought my car and put it in front of his house. That's it. I was caught. And he didn't say anything. But he sent a message out with one of the Bachram who was close with him at the time. He said that anyone who has a car or had a car should please come to me and I would like to speak with them. So, of course, I am quite nervous. I don't know what I'm going to get. But it's probably not a big hug and a keep up the good work. I make my way over to the Rosh Hashiva later that night, and I say, uh, Rebbe, I kind of, and the Rosh Hashiva said, yeah, I heard you had a car. It isn't so exciting, and I was disappointed. And he told me sternly, I'm making everyone drive their cars home today. But since I know you live far away, I'm going to keep the car here. And when the off Shabbos comes, I want you to drive it home. And don't bring it back. And I said, of course, of course. But then he continued. And he said, Michal, you know, since you had this car, the worst part was that you were hiding something from me. And I can't properly nurture you. I can't connect with you. You're always going to put up some sort of wall because you know that we can't become too close because ultimately, then I may figure out about what you're hiding. So now, you can get rid of this car. You can bring it home. You don't feel like you're hiding anything. I feel like our real relationship can start and we can build it. It wasn't until this week that I recognized the Rosh Hashiva's absolute brilliance and his unique prowess in his ability to educate young gentlemen. It was this week that we come across the mitzvah of that when thou hast completed the tithings of the third of thy produce in the third year, and to speak regular English here, there's a mitzvah. Every Erev Pesach, 
after the third year of the Shemitah cycle, the seven-year cycle, one needs to make sure that they have properly allocated all of the third-year tithes. Make sure you did it right. You separated and you gave it. And that if, God forbid, there may still erroneously remain some misallocated money in your possession, see to it that it is distributed properly. That satisfactory tithing has been accomplished. But it doesn't stop there. The mitzvah, along with the allocating of the miser, you must make sure to do a vidui miser, a confession about your miser. And listen to this. And you tell Hashem, you say in front of Hashem, Then thou shalt say before the presence of Hashem, I've cleared out that which is hallowed from the house. And I have also given it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, to the ger, all of it. You have to do a vidui. You must out loud say and confirm that you have fulfilled properly all of the relevant mitzvahs. A vidui, a declaration of sorts, a self-examination that you dutifully fulfilled your tithing obligations. And when you think about a vidui at large, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is the mitzvah to be misvada and to confess to do a vidoy when you are repenting. Tshuva, during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the high holidays. It's one of the parts, the halakim of tshuva. You have to forsake sin. You have to commit yourself to do better in the future in order to have full repentance. You got to make sure to regret your actions. Jam, I'm sorry. I wish I never did it. But you know what? Even if you have all of those Tanoim, all of those parts of your tshuva done, taken care of, there's a check mark next to them, still not enough. You need vidoy. You need to confess your sins out loud. And Revolba wants to know, why? Is it not enough to have some honest regret? I can also forsake my sin. I can make up my mind to deny it in the future. And still, that's not enough. What is lacking? What is left? And why does Vidoy accomplish that? What role does Vidoy play? And when we examine the root of sin, one of the causations, one of the factors, and one of the outcomes of sin, we will be able to then hopefully come back and understand what Vidoy is and why it plays a role in our Vidoy Meister and separating tithes, and hopefully get back to understand Reb Nussenstein's educational mindset and philosophies. You see, every single time that a person does an Avera, let's take Lashon Hara for example. The Gemara tells us, if you speak illicit tongue, you speak gossip or slander about someone, you are somebody that denies the existence of Hashem. You are a kofar. Why? We are taught because you may have looked left and right to see if that person is around listening to you because you don't want to make sure that they hear you speak behind their back. So when they're not around, that's when you speak 
your gossip. That's when you get it in and start the rumor. But you forgot to look up. You forgot to check if Hashem is listening. So when you spoke Lashon Hara, you so to speak, or not so to speak, denying Hashem's existence. You imagine that Hashem isn't really listening. You have created this fantasy. Hashem can't really see me. Every single time that a person does sin, in the recesses of our hearts, we have to conclude, Hashem can't see me because it's too hard to do something against Hashem in front of Hashem. So every chayt is a building of a partition and imagined, totally fabricated mechitza. And one of the interesting factors about this fake wall that we have created between us and Hashem is that the wall doesn't actually stop Hashem's vision at all. He can see what you are doing quite clearly. It is just a wall that we can see or we pretend to be there, this partition mechitza of sorts. Vidoy. Vidoy tears down walls. Vidoy says, Chatanu, I have sinned. Lefanecha in front of your face. Confession tears up the imaginative walls. When a person goes ahead and says, Hashem, in front of your face, I spoke Lush and Hara and I didn't look up. You have shown this bright beam, this shining beam of truth to destroy these imaginative, fabricated walls. And for every sin that we do, that we pretend Hashem can't see us, another wall, another partition created. And so, Vida continues to just like a bulldozer destroy these walls and chatanu lefanecha, it rings so true to us that I've sinned in front of you every time that you say it. And when you look inside of the machzor, God willing, on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, when you will say vidoy, you will see how on the right side of the page there's this list of all the chatanu lefanechas. And on the left side, there's the list of the actual sins that a person can confess to. One's with Lashon Hara, one's with immorality, and the misuse of our potentials, and all the different sins. And the custom is, as my great Rebbe of ninth grade, who continues to be my Rebbe of wisdom, Rabbi Shaul Lefkowitz Lita, he said people have the custom to keep their finger on the left side of the page, just moving their finger down, listing and saying each sin, because they know that the words before it are and with this is this. Every sin. But truthfully, the more important part is to have that intention and to keep your finger on the right side of the page. Of it was in front of you that I sinned. Removing the walls, shining this light and clarifying and opening up this relationship between man and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Vidoy is a glowing ray of truth that dispels the sinful fantasies and imagined walls. But there's more. Another benefit in confessing. And that is that it's hard to begin any healing process if you can't admit and realize 
the sickness. Always the first step is to recognize and acknowledge a certain shortcoming. God, I need help. This is an area of weakness for me. And im ein ani li mili, we are told. We're taught by the Mishnah that if a person will not be for themselves, well then who will be for them? And that's not because there aren't others to help you. Your parents, your rabbeim, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu will help you. But Rabbi Yonah explains to us that it's not going to work unless you yourself actually decide to acknowledge where you are lacking and to decide once and for all to perfect it. So many of the sins that a person may do are never sins. Because really, it wasn't that bad that I took a tissue. He doesn't even care. Am I really upset that I really sin that I didn't have proper concentration in prayer? Nobody does. It's too hard. The fashionable philosophy tells us otherwise. Am I expected? Am I in trouble for not learning a sufficient amount? Doesn't Hashem know my schedule? I'm so exhausted. Things aren't necessarily sins. Things aren't issues until we acknowledge and admit and clarify to ourselves a confession of self-examination, a.k.a. a vidoy, that will quiet the voices inside of your head. Vidoy is us comparing notes from what our life is to that which Hashem commands. And the discrepancy is vidui. Vidui is an acknowledgement of weakness. The confession restores a clear outlook on life. It's a returning to reality. It's returning to life, real life. That's vidui. All of this is accomplished with an honest confession. And it's not easy. No. To really look yourself in the mirror and say, that tissue that I took was stealing five cents from my friend. That's not easy. The time that I woke up late, ugh, I really could have got up. Really, that is just, I'm lazy. It's very hard. The pain, of course, is well documented for anybody that sees the truth. The pain is excruciating. But when you look the truth in the eye, even though it ain't a big bowl of cherries, you become like Yehuda. Yehuda was blessed by his father Yaakov to be the king. He grabbed the throne. It was going to be the monarchy in his dominion for the foreseeable future. Because at Odisa, you admitted. He admitted with the episode of him and Tamar. It is king-like. It shows givura and strength like a lion to admit. At Odisa, therefore, you will be the monarch. So, back to the tithing on Erev Pesach. Why is it that it's not enough just to allocate the necessary tithes and see to it that it has been dutifully and satisfactorily taken care of? Because sometimes you can't see 
satisfaction unless you do V-Day. In order to make sure that there isn't a dollar stuck on your hand, a couple pennies in your pocket, or maybe a couple more bucks that are supposed to be put in the Meister pile, that takes a V-Day. All of a sudden, you start to see a couple extra bucks that were supposed to go to the pauper or to a Cohen or Levy. You understand what you have to do. But it takes an honest confession. It takes vidui. And now I understand that the Rosh Hashiva and the depth of his thinking, and he said, Michal, bring your car home because then you're going to be lying to yourself. You're going to build a fake wall. You're never going to open up to me and I'm never going to be able to learn with you. I'm happy that I never brought the car back. And if you're still not sold, on a full, honest confession, a real vidui, well then maybe keep in mind that the heavenly courts function in the exact opposite way of courts down here in our world. In our world, when you admit, that's when you get punished. Self-incrimination, thank you for telling the truth, now go to jail. But upstairs, in heaven, if you're Marshia es Atzmo, if you admit guilt, you walk away totally squeaky clean. Hashem says, you were the judge already. There's nothing left to do here. You were honest, you see it, and now you want to repent. Welcome home. So confess to return to reality. Admit. Do a vidoy and exonerate yourself. Reveal the facts as they are to yourself. Because Hashem knows all of our thoughts and our actions. Own up to your actions and your decisions. Like a king. Act like Yehuda. Seek the truth. Admit to the truth. Quiet. The voices inside of your head that are imagining certain partitions between you and the Almighty and tear down those walls that are separating you from Hashem. And all of this can be done with some honest confession. Hisvada l'fnei Hashem alokecha. Admit, confess, say, vidui. Kill them, can't